Welcome to today's episode of Kicking Off with me, John Mills. Today I'm joined by Dr. Stuart Vella from the University of Wollongong in Australia. Stuart's research focuses on leadership in youth sport, positive youth development and mental health. So, Dr. Stuart Vella, thanks very much for coming on the show. That's my pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me. Good, good. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you're keeping all right, given the uh, given the circumstances going on with uh, COVID nineteen stuff. You doing all right? Yes, it's interesting times. We're in full lockdown here in in Sydney, Australia. So it's um, something to get used to. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to dwell too too much on that because uh, everybody's talking about it all the time. So uh, so let's make this uh, let's make this uh, an hour of COVID free conversation. Sound all right? <laughs> that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Uh, so I start every episode by asking my guests to just tell them tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, if you could do that, sure. Um, I am uh, a senior lecturer at the University of Wollongong uh, in Australia. Wollongong is a a coastal, a beautiful coastal city, about an hour's drive south of Sydney. Um, I wear a number of hats, John, at at the university. Um, So I teach teach into undergraduate uh, psychology, mostly kind of foundational psychology subjects. I'm the head of students in the School of Psychology. That that uh, keeps me keeps me busy dealing with a couple of thousand psychology students at the university, uh, and I lead a, a group, a research group um, called the Global Alliance for Mental Health in Sport. Um, and the the mission of the group is is really just to to try and improve the mental health of everyone who's involved in in sport around the world. So it's a, it's a big mission and that keeps me, keeps me reasonably busy as well. Um, I live in Sydney. I live in, in the southern part of Sydney, which is kind of the, the part that's closest to, to the city of Wollongong. So uh, Sydney is a, is a beautiful city. I've been living here all my life. I've been married for 10 years. I have three beautiful children and uh, Generally, I think John, I'm a I'm a pretty big sports fan. You could probably find me on the couch watching most sports, which has been difficult to, at this time. But um, I'm looking forward to to getting back and watching just about any sport I can. Nice as soon as possible. So, how did you get into um, how did you get into this role at, at the University of Is it Wollongong? How do I pronounce that? 
Yeah, it's it's Wollongong. Uh, it's it's spelled W O double L, um, and so yeah, some people pronounce it Wollongong, but it's uh, it, the Australian is Wollongong, as in you know the sheep's wool, but uh, okay. it's, it's only spelled with like Wollongong woolen. At the okay. Beginning. I um, I've been at the university, John, since since I was an undergraduate student. I um, I started in 2005 as a as an undergraduate student in psychology and uh have Mm -hmm. have really never left i think to to a large extent it's staying at the university has been the path of least resistance you know from a from an undergraduate degree uh into a phd and and phd into postdoc and um, postdoctoral research into into a more permanent uh, academic staff member um it's, it's been a fun journey, but um, very much, I think, the path of least resistance in the sense that it's, you know, with a three-year or four-year degree in psychology in Australia, there's not all that much you can do in terms of practising psychology. You need to go on and do further study. Um, clinical psychology wasn't of, of huge interest to me, but... Um, I had a number of, of passions, which in, you know mostly revolved around sport. Um, that you know, entering a PhD gave me the freedom to to pursue those passions, um, and you know, a, a bit of a lack of other options, I guess, with a with a three or four year degree in psychology. So, I mean, that's really how it's how it's played out for me, and it's been, you know, fifteen pretty good years at the University of Wollongong. Yes, yeah, that's good going. So what? So where do you think your love of sport comes from? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's, it's something that I've always gravitated towards. Um, growing up in Australia, it's, the exposure to sport is extreme. Um, cricket and, and soccer mostly have, have consumed my life, but... Um, I'm, I'm fascinated also by the, the other culture of, of sport in the US around collegiate sports, um, the English Premier League, most professional football leagues around the world. I think it's just been a it's been a love affair, John, for as long as I can remember, and it's hard to, to say exactly why, but um, maybe it's it's just an intrinsic motivation for the love mm-hmm. of it. And you played a bit, right? I did. I did. So I, I was a very, very average uh, semi-professional soccer player, football football player, and uh, I was a goalkeeper. As you know, I, we've, we've met a couple of times, John, and I'm a, I'm a big guy, six foot three, 100 kilos. Um, but it was a very, I would say a very average <laughs> professional goalkeeper. Well, you, you played at a reasonable level though, right? So you, you're probably doing yourself a bit of a disservice there. So you came over to the UK, right, to England in particular? <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, so I, I, I um, was on scholarship at our Australian Institute of Sport um, and then uh, spent some time playing, playing here and eventually made my way over to the UK for, for some trials. Who with, like, or can you not say? Oh, oh, I'm happy. I'm happy to say there's a, <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a host of them. Um, so, uh, you know, originally it was, it was Everton, um, uh, Luton Town, Oldham Athletic, Sheffield United. Uh, they're, they're the four in, four in the UK that, uh, 
that I spent small amounts of time at. Nice. A, a, a nice tour of the UK at, <laughs> at least. How long were you yeah, able for? Absolutely. Uh, so it's about six months in total. Okay. So a reasonable stint then. And what happened from there? Like, did you go back and play in Oz or? So, yeah, I, I, I so when I was um, at Oldham Athletic, I uh, uh, was was there training and I, I dived to my left, John, and I, I landed on my elbow and ruptured my spleen. Um, not long after that, I, I um, lost consciousness and I, I woke up in Oldham Hospital um, in the cardiac ward of, of all wards. Um, I think they, they believed there was something wrong with my heart, but uh, indeed there wasn't. It was, it was my spleen. Um, so I had a, a grand time in, right. in Oldham Hospital for uh, a week or so. I um, then spent some time with family in Milton Keynes before I was allowed to fly uh, back to Sydney. And um, after that, I, I did play semi-professionally um, for a little bit, a, a couple of seasons. But um, most of it, John, to be honest with you, I spent on the bench and not enjoying my time. And I, I retired. Uh, I say retired as if I had a, had a you know, a great career. <laughs> let's say let's say I retired at the, the ripe old age of, I don't know, it was about 22 or 23 and uh, um, hung up the hung up the gloves at least I haven't hung up the boots but I hung up the gloves and so because like obviously I don't know exactly how old you are but um, I'm guessing that soccer wasn't a particularly uh, popular sport maybe uh, in Australia when you were a youngster um I look I think soccer in Australia has always been a very popular participation sport that doesn't translate to huge crowds um, in what is now the A-League, what, what was before the, the National Soccer League. Um, so it, I think, you know, along with Australian rules football, it's, it's the most popular sport in terms of numbers, uh, particularly junior numbers um, and particularly amongst girls. So it's always been very popular at the grassroots level, but that just hasn't translated into huge, you know, numbers of, of bums on seats at, at professional games. Which is really unfortunate, you know. I think it's a it's a huge missed opportunity, and I, I, you know, I have no idea how to fix it. But um, it seems to be, you know, for the last mm. twenty years, football or soccer has been the sleeping giant of Australian sport, and I just I don't know if it'll ever wake up. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite similar to the states in that sense, right? Um, but so, do you follow any teams? I'm a huge AS Roma fan. Ah, okay. Why Roma? Uh, I, I have family uh, in Rome. So I have my, my father's um, sister uh, who was born here uh, in Sydney but um, moved, to, moved to Rome after uh, university and um, didn't, you know, has, has stayed there. So we have family in Rome and, and you know, I think it's uh, love for Roma was contagious in that sense, John. <laughs> Well, yes, as teams go, it's, uh, it's not a bad one to follow, is it? Especially, uh, especially when you were younger, there were. Oh, it's, it's an incredibly frustrating one. Yeah, well, yeah, frustrating, but at least they're uh, top division and always competing, and you know, you like you're not following Oldham, right? So <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, it could definitely be worse. I mean, I think 
I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love Roma and you, know, you never, never would dream of, of not following a team that you love. Um, but with, with that, it's, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? But having such passion for, for any team, not only Roma, but, you know, any team you follow, I think is, it's the agony and ecstasy and some years brings more agony than ecstasy, which is, seems to have been the norm for yeah. Roma over the last few years. But, you know, the, the small amount of ecstasy is worth it somehow. Mm-hmm. There was a paper a couple of years ago, um, like a behavior economics study, looking at um, like, I don't know if you came across, uh, like maybe you've come across it at some point, but um, they were looking at like a cost benefits analysis of supporting football teams um, and basically saying that unless you support like a Manchester United, like a team that's like a, winning all of the time, then actually supporting, like following any football team is uh, is like as a cost, as a negative on your existence, basically, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's usually uh, it's usually suffering for, there can only ever be one winner, right? And 19 losers. So uh, depending on how you look at it. But, the pain, uh, you know, they, they say the pain of loss is greater than the joy of gain. So even when you do win, it's, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as intense as the the sadness associated with losing does it <laughs> yeah more more relief than uh, than joy maybe i don't know uh so anyway uh <laughs> so uh so... <laughs> we've we've taken a tangent yeah but like i could talk about football all day so it's, it's always a good it's always a good tangent to take yeah. <laughs> um so so you did your um you, you've done all of your studies at um wollongong um uh so what did you do your phd in I did my PhD um, on the role of the coach and specifically the youth sports coach um, in facilitating, you know, positive developmental outcomes for, for kids who participate in, in sports. So this is kind of your average kid who, who might, you know, belong to a, a soccer club, a football club or an Aussie rules club um, might train, you know, once, uh, twice a week and, and have one game, competition setting on the on the weekend maybe you know and, and what's the my PhD was really about what's the what's the mm. role of the coach what 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 can the coach do to increase the developmental benefits um so life skill acquisition you know self-esteem social connectedness kind of those you know positive things that that people um, believe that sport can facilitate for young people um i I spent my phd looking specifically at the at the behaviors of of youth sport coaches and how they might be associated or facilitative of you know positive developmental outcomes nice but so why that topic it was really just born of of merging two passions you know i i love um sport it had a particular interest at the time in in sports coaching and the psychology of sports coaching. Um, but also, you know, I have a, I have a passion about mental health and, and development through sport, the role of sport more broadly in, in population health. And this seemed like a, a, a great way to, to marry those, those passions. Um, you know, for me at the time, spending three or four years studying 
you know, the way that the coach might influence development of the development of children through sport is just really attractive. So he's really just born of of passion and and also I think a little bit of personal experience. You know, I think if you've played sport a lot, you can probably relate to the influence that coaches have had on your life, particularly if you've played sport, you know, if you've taken sport fairly seriously, you know, if sport's been a big part of your life, no matter at what, what level you play, you know, if you, if sport's important to you, I think you can relate to the influence of, of various coaches on, on your life. And some um, have minimal influence, but some have huge influence, you know, and um, that huge influence isn't always good. Uh, some of it's good. Some of it might not be good. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, when we have three quarters of, you know, Australia's population participating in youth sports in any given year, and it's, you know, probably likely to be more than three quarters over a number of years because you have some kids who who drop out of sport, um, others who, who join. You know, I think these experiences are being felt all over the country, so mm-hmm. it's important to to study, to look at, to ask the question about how we can use those experiences to maximise, you know, developmental benefits or, or mental health or physical health, whatever the outcome might be. Um, but I think, you know, that, you know, those kids can relate to the influence of the coach in their life. Mm. I guess, so why, why focus on coaches specifically? Because obviously there's like, there's a number of different uh, angles you can look at that question from. So like, is there a reason that you looked at coaches in particular? Was it, maybe it was just the, the opportunity that was presented to you at the time, or uh, maybe there's something yeah, else. I think it's, it's, it's more of the, it's more of the latter in that it was, it was something I was particularly passionate about uh, at the time. I think it was, you know, coaching is, is something that I've, I've done on mm-hmm. and off. Um, so it was just something that I was particularly passionate about at the time. And I, mean, I still um, retain a strong interest in, in the psychology of, of coaching and the influence of coaches more broadly on, on athlete experience, athlete mental health. Um, but it was, it was born of, you know, a, a passion mm-hmm. and, and an opportunity more so than having any great roots in in planning or you know long term goals or anything like that. Mm. I think that's pretty common. To be fair, we kind of muddle our way through the early years <laughs> to a certain extent. I think I think I've muddled my way through a lot of things, John. <laughs> you know, PhD being one of them. But you know, yeah. muddled might not be exactly the right word. But I think you know, career, career development, research. Um, PhD, you know, these kind of things some, sometimes have very limited roots in, in planning, you know, it's sometimes they, they happen how they happen and um, opportunity is a, is a big driver of that in my opinion. Mm. So it really was, a, it really was in this case about opportunity and passion and, and, and merging the two. I, you know, obviously being number of years now post, post that period of my life, post PhD, I, you know, you come to appreciate the important role that peers play, um, you know, teammates, group members, um, parents, 
um, siblings. They they all play a huge role, and it's not just it's not just the coach. But as a naive PhD student, John, I, I may have thought that uh, the coach had a, a, a bigger impact than perhaps was you know is potentially true. Although I, I believe they have a they have a very big impact, but. You know, I think there's there's cumulative impacts, isn't there? You know, between peers, coaches, parents, yeah. um, you know, as well as policy setting, you know, environmental influences. Mm. Certainly, at the level that that you're describing uh, as being your primary interest is it's the same as my primary interest. Um, obviously, the coach has a big role in shaping all of those other fa- factors. The way that they uh, like set up the environment what the uh the norms and expectations are within that environment like it all feeds together and the, the the coach has a really big role in that right so so um so what how do you think that how do you think the coaches like have a particularly um or can create a particularly positive experience or particularly negative experiences for their athletes or players participants whatever we want to call them yeah look i think I think we could talk for hours on on you know coaching behaviors and and how a coach might set up you know an environment to be facilitative of of you know really positive athlete outcomes and and to a large extent I think it it does depend on what outcome you're looking at and John you could probably add a lot to this conversation perhaps more than I can but um my my PhD was in uh, we looked at a particular a theory of of leadership called transformational leadership, which um, I've since left behind. But other um, more well accomplished researchers have have picked up with with gusto and have done a really fantastic job. And I think some of those kind of leadership behaviours might be really important. Um, you know, good role modelling uh, to start with kind of you know you get the the coach you know i think it's easy to bring to mind coaches who don't role model uh well who are not appropriate role models um so being a good role model is important um intellectual stimulation so you know getting the players to to solve their own problems for example not providing them with the solutions all the time helping helping players to be creative to be innovative I think is really important. Uh, having a genuine concern and understanding of, of your players, of your athletes is re- also really important. You know, um, I think, you know, unconditional positive regards. So just, just yeah. knowing that you, you, you value them no matter what um, is really important. Understanding them as an individual. I think one of the, one of the people I've always, um, I'm going to say look up, looked up to, but not that I've ever ever met him. Was was John Wooden, um, and he just had some some great philosophies on on coaching, uh, and I think it was John Wooden, although I can't be absolutely mm. sure, um, but I think it was John Wooden that said, you know, equal equal treatment. Um, I'm going to I'm going to struggle through this. Um, equal treatment is not always equitable. <laughs> Something like that, anyway, and I think that's it's really based on on you know providing individualized treatment to players. You know, and I think you need to know them, 
You need to have a genuine concern for them. And if they know that, that will go a long way to, to making their sporting experience fairly positive. Um, obviously, coaches, coaches motivator mm-hmm. is important. Um, you know, I, I think intrinsic facilitating intrinsic motivation is important. So facilitating, you know, players' perceptions of their competence. So making them feel like they're good. Uh, at what they do, giving them opportunities to express their competence. You know how bad it feels when you're on the bench all the time. Even if you have really great perceptions of confidence, you Mm. know, even if you're really confident, but you have no outlet to express your ability because you're on the bench all the time, it doesn't feel great. So, you know, giving players a sense of competence, a sense of, you know, of pride in that, you know, and a sense of feeling really good at what they do and giving them an opportunity to express that is, is important. Um, making sure players have some ownership over the over the environment, you know, facilitating choice, you know, giving them some choice, um, giving them a strong rationale as to why they're doing what they're doing so they understand is also really important. Um, and then I think, you know, more, more generally it's about how do you set up an environment that's, number one, psychologically safe, um, you know, certainly free from abuse and harassment, all those kind of things. Um, but how do you facilitate, you know, appropriate goals? How do you facilitate appropriate um, peer interactions? And you might have a, a, a bit more to say on that than than I than I do. But you know, I think there's there's such a broad spectrum of of coaching behaviours, and it's you know, I think really depending on the outcome that you want for your athlete, you can dip in and out of various theories of, of coaching or leadership in order to stay within the realm of evidence. I I think we need better evidence, but I think, you know, you can dip in and out of of certain theories depending on the the outcome that you're looking at. If you want to engage in evidence-based promotion of, you know, good athlete outcomes. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, it's interesting you said about John Wooden. Um, I use uh, a poem that he wrote in uh, lots of my lectures. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'll put it on the show notes and maybe I'll try and include it somewhere. But um, it was used in a Gatorade com- commercial in the States. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but it's uh, it's a really uh, powerful uh, it's a really powerful poem about like how we as coaches have to be careful in the way that we act uh, because we are in um like you say we are role models to these these young kids uh, and they they do follow us they do listen to us um so yes yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting area so why, why did you move away from this area um i don't think it was a, a conscious choice john i think um the bottom line is that that we got a a very big uh, grant from the Movember Foundation, a $2 million grant to look at how we could use sport to promote the mental health of young men. And um, as you know, sometimes research is um, dictated by where you can get funding for your, for your research. It's, you know, your research topic, um, is, is sometimes dictated by where you can get funding. And so, you know, that's, that's in, in part why um, the pivot. But I've always really 
been passionate about mental health, um, in part because of, you know, my own experiences in, in sport mm-hmm. and, um, you know, having knowledge of the way that sport influences athlete mental health um, has, has really ignited a, a passion um, about athlete mental health. Um, so this was back in 2014. We got this grant. So it's mm-hmm. kind of preceded the intense focus that we've seen in the last couple of years on athlete mental health, particularly in elite sports. Um, so it was really born of a, again, a, a passion, but um, also opportunity. Uh, you know, it might be a recurring theme of, of our chat, but it's, you know, passion and opportunity tend to dictate a lot of, of what I've done. Um, so there was a, a, a call for, for funding from the Movember Foundation um in 2014 so i spent my my christmas break um in australia that's our our summer break so our big break um spent the christmas break writing a writing a grant um Mm -hmm. for funding to to kind of put in place a a a sports-based mental health program for for young men um and that you know was funded in in early 2015 and Really, we've been working uh, feverishly on that ever since. So, what? Uh, so, can you tell us a bit more about that project? What you're doing? Yeah, sure. So, we started that in 20, 2015. Um, I think we went into it with a, a number of ideas about what we thought that a, a sports-based mental health program for young men would look like. Um, and in some respects, we were right, but in other respects, we, I, th- I think we weren't. We did a whole lot of um, what, what we call formative research, but basically we just went out there and asked young men, we asked their parents, we asked their coaches, we asked their sports clubs what they wanted in terms of um, a program for mental health to, to support the mental health of young men. And, and we changed slightly what we, would, what we thought we would be doing. And what we ended up with was kind of a a multi-component program. We always thought we would do a multi-component program. I I believe strongly that intervening um, or facilitating programs at multiple levels of influence are are really important to change the environment. Um, I think, you know, if we can intervene with athletes as well as their coaches and their parents and at a club level, our our programs are probably going to, be more successful in terms of behaviour change than if we simply intervene at or provide a program at, at just at an athlete level, for example, or just a coach level as, as I'd been doing previously. So we have, um, as part of that, we've developed uh, two programs for young men in particular. So these were not elite sports participants. They're kind of recreational, aimed at recreational athletes. So you kind of as I said before, just the you know your average twelve to eighteen year old adolescent who who might be playing uh, football or soccer or cricket or Australian rules football, training once a week, playing once a week, you know, in terms of a, a competitive um, context, once a week. So we have two programs for for those young men who are participating in sport. One of them is a, a basic mental health literacy program Um, and in that program 
it's it's deliberately designed to be really brief, um, to be delivered, you know, before a training session or after a training session. Um, it's always delivered in a changing room or in the in the locker room uh, or in a in a clubhouse. Uh, we've delivered them literally on the training paddock, um, but it's it's deliberately brief. It's always delivered, you know, as you know, at a team level. We kind of tried to play off the the group dynamics, you know, the the trust, um, the the knowledge of each other that that um, teammates bring, you know, those established relationships. So we deliver it at a team level, and it's, it's basically how to recognize the warning signs of depression and anxiety, the the two most common mental health problems during adolescence. Um, mm-hmm. We try to behaviorize those, and so by that I mean it's it's all well and good to say that lethargy, you know, feeling tired is a, is a sign of depression. But what does that look like? You know, what does that look like when if your mate has depression and he's rocked up to training, what does lethargy look like? Or maybe he's not turned up to training, uh, whatever it is. Mm. What is that? You know, we try to behaviorize it so that, that we give the young men those skills to actually look out for one another. Um, we try to teach them how to, um, say i'm not okay because you know a lot of the time people ask you how you are and even if you're not feeling well you don't have the confidence to say you know what mate i'm not doing well at the moment so we try and give them the skills we try and give them the words so we we do role plays we think that role plays are really important in, in that that program because if nothing else it gives them a couple of words to say and an opportunity to practice so and we try to teach them that and then uh, we teach them where to go to get help, you know, what to do with that. So how do you, what are appropriate sources of, of help? How do you access those? Um, what might you say to a, to a friend? How might you connect a friend with an appropriate source of help? So, mm. <coughs> sorry, excuse me. That's the, that's one program. And the other program is more of a resilience-based program. We try to teach them the psychosocial skills so the the skills that they need to be able to to bounce back you know um the catch cry of of the that intervention is kind of bending not breaking and it's it's all about how do you bend and not break um we we that one is delivered into in a workshop face-to-face and supplemented with online modules and that program teaches them things like um problem solving how to access social support and those you know, kind of psychosocial skills that you really need um, to be resilient. And we try to use sport to teach them those skills. You know, I think sport is great because it, it offers a, like a really safe, um, very concrete but very safe examples of, of failure or setbacks in life. You know, you might, mm-hmm. you might be on the bench, you might get dropped, you might get cut. You might lose a, a big game, a grand final, um, you know, whatever it might be. They're, they're very concrete examples of setbacks in your life, but they're very safe. You know, and it's not to take away from how much those things hurt or can affect us, but but they are relatively safe examples. And so helping them to work through those kind of things um, with the skills like problem solving, um, accessing social support, um, is you know we think a fairly good way to try and give them those skills so they kind of complement each other you know the 
the the resilience and then the mental health literacy kind of um, programs are, are designed to really give them a, a fairly comprehensive um, suite of knowledge and skills that they can use to to be a little bit more resilient to be uh, to know when they might need to to seek help um, the, the skills to seek help early if, if that's the case and then as I said I think it's really important to to try and embed these programs at multiple levels so we have a, a program for parents which is fairly similar to the mental health literacy program for adolescents it's really for parents it's really about how do you tell the difference between what's normal adolescent behavior and what's potentially a warning sign of a mental health problem you know because parents were saying to us things like well you say lethargy is a sign of depression but i mean adolescents sleep like they sleep in until midday yeah you know that's you know that's just what they do you say that overeating or not eating is a is potentially a warning sign of depression but you know my adolescent eats me out of house and home so how am i to tell what's the difference between normal adolescent behavior and Mm. what's potentially a warning sign and so we kind of that that's the kind of core of the parent program. I kind of try to teach them those things as well as, you know, the kind of how do you start a conversation, uh, try and give them the words to say there. And then obviously the, the avenues for, you know, appropriate avenues for help seeking as well. Um, and then we have programs for coaches and, and coaches again, are, are really influential we have two two different programs for coaches as, as part of the program, which um, we call ahead of the game, the, the whole thing we call ahead of the game. And um, for coaches, the one program is really about uh, appropriately motivating athletes. We know that if athletes can be intrinsically motivated, so participate just because they love it, they'll have higher levels of well-being and they'll also be less likely to drop out of sport. And I have an inkling that, you know, just – maintaining participation in sport is, is good for your mental health in and of itself. So mm. um, if we can prevent kids from dropping out of sport and at the same time increase their well-being through intrinsic motivation, that's a great thing. So the coach program is based around uh, self-determination theory, which is a big theory of motivation. We try and teach kid, uh, coaches how to facilitate some of those things that we were talking about before in terms of um, giving giving kids um, some control over their environment, giving them some you know a sense of confidence that they're good at what they do, and giving them a sense of having good positive relationships with their coach and with uh, with their teammates mm. in the, in that sport. So that's a, a fairly intense um, program. You know, I think um, to change coaching behaviors meaningfully enough to actually change outcomes for adolescents is is tough. You know, like. I've coached for many years and, and changing your behavior as a coach is hard. It's, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen from a two hour face-to-face workshop, you know, and mm. I, you know, sometimes I get motivated from those things to go and change my behavior, but actual behavior change in terms of coaching um, that's sufficient to meaningfully change athlete outcomes, I think is, is really tough. So that's a, we have two versions of the program. One's six weeks and one's, you know, kind of 12 weeks of it. That's that. And then we also have a, a mental health literacy program for coaches. So again, it's, you know, basic warning signs of depression and anxiety. What do they look like in terms of um, athletes? If, you know, you've got an athlete that's, for example, got some anxiety, what, what does that look like? Are they saying, you know, coach, I, 
don't put me on. I don't want to go on. Mm. I'd rather start on the bench or um, are they, you know, what does it look like if they're not able to concentrate at training? What does it, what does that actually look like? You know, are they, are they dropping the ball? Are they, you know, heading to the wrong, wrong cone? If you give them a drill, what, you know, what does that actually look like? And how do you pick up those little warning signs? Mm. How do you start a conversation with that athlete? And what do you do? You know, how do you work within that coach, athlete, parent triangle? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then again, obviously f- options for, for help seeking. So that's kind of broadly ahead of the game in, you know, the, the 1,000 foot view of a, of ahead of the game. I've probably gone into more detail than, than most people care to hear about. But, um, you know, it's, that, that's, it's obviously a big, Big program. It's it's something that we've been working on now for for five years, mm-hmm. um, and you know we, we've we've um, fallen flat on our face a number of times. John, you know, research is not not always easy. Um, we certainly had, had made mistakes in in those five years. Um, you know, parts of the the project have have been quite tough you know really tough psychologically on on me um but also on our our team more broadly you know there was a time there when we just didn't didn't feel like we were going to get enough um participants through the controlled trial to Mm -hmm. to warrant a controlled trial um and you know when you have two million dollars of charity money and then you think about all of your mates that have donated 20 bucks and how many times people have to do that to get to the 2 million that you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have potentially, you know, nothing to show for it at the end is, it's a, it's a huge weight on your shoulders. And it's not only, not only the, the weight of having you know, charity funding, but I think just implementation, applied research, you know, going out and working with, with sporting clubs, you know, you know, when you're passionate about making change, you want to go out and work, in I'm going to say the real world, you know, though I don't, I don't often make a differentiation between research and real world, but mm. let's call it the real world. If you're going out and work, working in the real world with sporting clubs, with athletes in changing rooms, um, that can just be tough. You know, it's it's not always straightforward. We learn a lot of lessons over a number of years um, about about research, but about mostly about implementation, you know, how do you get bums on seats in a program? Um, how do you get bums on seats in a program when they have to do a one hour questionnaire and you've got to get parental consent and you've got to get, you know, athlete consent and what happens mm-hmm. if someone doesn't bring in all those kind of things, you know, you've got to work through and learn these lessons and they're not necessarily things that you, you know, sometimes you think you know the answer, but you don't, you don't always know the answer. No, absolutely. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I think you're you're doing yourself a disservice if you think others won't be uh, interested in that level of detail. But um, uh, I'm conscious that that that, that was probably uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, that probably took quite a lot of psychological toll in itself to explain it all. So let's take a, a quick break and then um, we can come back <laughs> and uh, and chat some more.
Thanks for joining us in today's episode. Uh, before we progress, I just want to take a few moments to mention uh, a couple of ways you can get in contact with me. Uh, the easiest way is probably via Twitter. Uh, my username is at jpmillsphd. Um, you can also email me at kickingoff at uh, johnpmills.co.uk. If you want to help support the show, then leaving a review on Apple iTunes uh, helps other people to find the show. And uh, yeah, it's really useful. Obviously, share it with your colleagues. Um, the old traditional emails, a good one as well. And if you want to give me any feedback on any areas to improve or topics you want me to discuss, then please do let me know. Thanks. Right, let's get back to the show. So welcome back. Um, during the break, uh, Stuart mentioned the fact that uh, that I'd uh, stumbled across one of his uh, his facts for the the game that we usually play. So we're going to skip over that um, <laughs> for this week uh, <laughs> uh, in in the sense of um, uh, the injury with Oldham Athletic. What what were your three facts, Stu? So. Obviously, the fact, which is in fact fact, is that <laughs> um, while I was at Oldham Athletic, I I, um, I was training and um, I, I dived to my left as I as I told you before and uh, landed mm. on my my elbow and your spleen is just under your rib cage on the left hand side and um, I just popped. I, I say popped, but it was just a very small. Um, pop <laughs> a very small um, <laughs> rupture of the of the spleen um, which at the at the time I, I felt winded I you know I felt like um, obviously it, it, it hurt a little bit but I, I didn't know immediately that that something drastic had, had happened and that was something something mm. wrong um, I actually continued on. it was a it was a yeah. shame drill I continued so I continued to I continued to to, to play for a little while. Um, while the the goalkeeping coach absolutely warmed him warmed himself up to go in goal, um, and then I you know had uh, gone to the just to the, the dressing room. Um, someone had fixed me a cup of tea, and I just I just passed out uh, because your spleen obviously filters your it filters your blood, and so when you lose losing blood, I was losing blood into my abdomen. Um, not not at a great rate because I said that the um, rupture was only small, um, but I was losing blood into my abdomen. Obviously, lost blood pressure and, and lost um, just lost consciousness. And so, I had a had a great experience in, in Oldham Hospital. I ended up in the cardiac ward, um, and uh, I think because I'd, I'd ended up in the cardiac ward, they'd obviously testing my heart. Uh, they couldn't find anything wrong with my heart. It was it was I think about seven or eight days. It was a, happened to be. Um, Happened to, my accident happened to be on a on a Friday before a long weekend, so it wasn't until Tuesday um, right. that um, really the, the hardcore testing had, had started. So it was a it was a week before they found out I'd, I'd ruptured my spleen, and by that time it had kind of your spleen. I think yeah, I'm led to believe is very good at um, healing itself. Uh, so right. it, it had um, it had done that by that time, and I'd had a, been left with a, a blood clot in my abdominal cavity. So. Um, I wasn't allowed to, to play football until that had, had cleared. It was about 18 months. And uh, as I was telling you before, that's um, that's what led me to, to start uh, a university degree. Um, mm. And I've kind of never never looked back since. I've certainly never left since. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's funny how these things work out. So that was my, that was my fact. And um, the other two I'd, I'd um, invented 
some similar stories which seem to me equally 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 far fetched. So I mean, I was going to I was going to try to convince you that I was um, I was training at Swindon Town and I I dived to my left and hit my head on the goalpost and lost consciousness and ended up in Swindon Hospital. Um, my wife told me that was a bit that was a bit far fetched. I said, well, it's not that far fetched given what the truth. the the, the truth is and then uh, the the third one was I was going to tell you that uh, I'd um, I'd been trialling at Luton Town and and we were playing a a reserves match against uh, Tottenham and after after about 10 minutes of that match um, I'd I'd been sent off for handling the ball outside of the area and I'd I'd gone back into the dressing room and and punched the wall and, and broken my wrist Nice. Yeah. All, all believable. You. <laughs> well, you know, punching the wall has never really been in my repertoire, but, um, you know, to. You're, you're a big guy. I think it's possible. Well, it's, possible. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, uh, I, I haven't done overly well with these, so I might have dodged a bullet with that. So, uh, well, you know, if you hadn't, you, you if, might have if, if you hadn't have led on that, I'd already told you my uh, spleen story. <laughs> yeah. Then you, you might have you might have had a shoe in on this one. Sorry, everyone. Sorry, I've, I've spoiled it. <laughs> um, yeah, like <laughs> there's there's so many there's so much stuff that I could ask you about, but I'm, I'm conscious of time. Um, mm. Like I'm really interested in in hearing more around the development of the programs and uh, some of the ways mm-hmm. you're evaluating it. But I think uh, time-wise today, we're probably not going to be able to get through everything. So so maybe after the project's finished and the dust has settled and all that kind of thing, um, maybe I can get you back on and we can chat more about some of those things. Um, one, one very small question, though, related to what we were talking about before the break. Um, was this £2 million grant your first Grant that you were like budget manager, project manager for PI. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it it was. So I'd had a I'd had a number of small grants into like what we would call internal grants, so which are just grants given um, by the faculty, our faculty within the university or the, within the, the university itself. You know, kind of we're talking about ten ten thousand um, dollars here yeah. or there, five thousand um, dollars, and yeah. So I was I, I'd finished I'd finished my PhD in 2012 and, and been awarded um, that it was $2 million um, in 2014. So it's two years after my PhD. And, um, wow. you know, one of the reflections I have on that, that period, John, is that, you know, we're, we're very, very ill-prepared as researchers to run, you know, a lot of money, to run big grants. It's There was a lot of... Um, a lot of learning by making mistakes, um, mm. you know, in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you just manage a project of, of that size? How do you manage that amount of money? Um, mm. How do you, how do you run a, run a team of researchers? How do you look after a team? How do you make sure that they're all doing okay? How do you make sure that the project mm. gets done? What kind of governance systems do you need? I mean, no, no one had ever taught me this stuff, you know, um, while doing a PhD is, is essentially an, an apprenticeship in research, there's much more to running a research grant than just doing the research. Um, mm. You know, I, I think a, a $2 million grant, when I look back on that, is, you know, you could, you could be a, you know, CEO of a, a small organisation, you know. It's, it's, not, 
it's not an easy thing. Um, and as I said, uh, I alluded to, you know, making mistakes, but, you know, the mistakes were made certainly in, in the research um, mm. in terms of methodology, the implementation. We learned a lot, but there are also, you know, a lot of things to be learned around actually managing a grant of, of that size, um, particularly as a, a, a fairly fresh researcher. Mm. You talked about the thing that really struck me was that you, you mentioned the pressure um, and f- they're feeling responsible to to your mates that have put some money in t- to support this charity. And now you, you're the guy that's actually ultimately responsible for, for delivering on these programs. Um, I think that was the, that was the part that really struck me that at least if we have some smaller grants and by smaller grants, I, I mean like 50,000, a hundred thousand, it's not like, uh, insignificant amounts of money, but certainly not $2 million. Um, it kind of gives you some kind of prep for how are you going to feel, how, like how responsible you feel to the funders, how responsible you feel to the stakeholders like around that. So I think you've done amazingly well to, to, to deal with all of the stuff that goes with that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. There was certainly, certainly some testing times in there, John, uh, you know, brought me to tears, literally to tears a, c- a couple of times. Mm. Um, I'm not surprised. you know, I, I remember one, one time fairly well, I was in a cafe and we're going through a particularly tough time in terms of just recruiting, um, things weren't going very well at all. And, um, I spilt, I happened to spill my coffee in the cafe and I just burst into tears and I'm sure the people around me on the other tables just think, what is it? This guy, this guy's either, <laughs> you know, a bit crazy or, or he really, really loves that coffee. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it, it, you know, I just burst into tears because it's, you know, research can, research can be hard. It's, it's very rewarding. And, you know, the, the, you know, research is, is great because you can fairly autonomously pursue very challenging topics that are of huge interest to you and, and, um, you, you can do it in, in fairly innovative, creative ways um, as long as you can get some funding to do that, um, mm. you know. So it, it is really great. Research is really great. You know, solving you know, real-world big problems is, is fantastic, but it's not without its um, difficulties and, and at times, you know, it can be really, really hard. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I already know the answer to this question, but I ask all of my guests this. Um, so I, I ask what what product or paper or output you're most proud of? I'm guessing it's probably the work that you're doing now, but maybe not. So just, uh, so, so what, what is the, the thing that you're most proud of as a researcher? Oh, it's definitely ahead of the game. Um, mm-hmm. It's been five years of, of um, work, five, five years of, of really, really hard work. Um, we're really proud of, of where it's at um, at this point. So we obviously did a large controlled trial and, and those results um, were fairly promising, um, you know, showed that, that we're able to, to change at least the primary outcomes around mental health literacy intentions to provide help and seek help and those kind of things. So, you know, we have really robust evidence that, that the program works. Mm. Um, and, it's, it's just been, I mean, it's been a labour of love. It doesn't stop, obviously, with a, with a controlled trial. I mean, once you have the evidence that it works, I think it's, you know, you have a, a, a much higher 
greater purpose to, to you know to actually make change. And once you have a program that works, it's you're kind of obliged to to try and and disseminate, you know, to translate, to scale up. And we've been really lucky that we've been able to partner with Movember in that. Mm. Um, it's been great to have a funder that's also become a partner. Um, yeah. We we kind of have shared um, IP rights with, with Movember. So Movember are the um, worldwide uh, dissemination partner for Ahead of the Game. And uh, Ahead of the Game's, you know, in, in, in the hands of Movember has been going really, really well. The head of the game is the official uh, program of the, the Rugby League World Cup 2021, which is in the UK. Um, and as part of that, we'll roll out ahead of the game across um, every host city. I think there's 21 um, to over 8,000 uh, young men that play rugby league in the UK. Um, it's ahead of the games going forward in, in Canada um, it's in, in Australia. It's you know, it's it's something that we're really proud of. It's not, as I said, not been easy, but um, it's, there's a, a lot of a lot of satisfaction in that that body of work. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and rightly so too. Um, so, so what's the one thing that you love most about being a researcher? Um. I think, as I, as I said before, it's just the the freedom to autonomously pursue challenge and passion. You know, there's there's no one, mm. no one. At least this has been my experience to say what I should be, what I should be pursuing, what research I should be doing, what what big problem in the world I should be trying to solve, or how I should be trying to solve it. So you have the the freedom to pursue these these big problems mm. to solve these big problems. You have the freedom to, to solve them in a way that, that you see fit. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's hugely rewarding. The challenge that's inherent mm. in that, the, the autonomy that's inherent in that is, is, it's, it's really, really rewarding experience, I think. Um, and so to be able to pursue those passions mm. in that way, I think is, is just the best part of, of being a researcher. And, you know, I think also being a researcher is not just, it's mm. not just sitting in a lab and doing experiments, you know. I mean, it can be that for sure. And that, that you know, lab-based research is, has changed many, many things, you know, for the better. Um, but getting out and, and working with, young men or working with coaches and working with parents is, is in itself really rewarding. Mm, absolutely. And so what's one thing you don't like or dislike about being a researcher? Mm. That's, a, that's a good one. You know, I think the one, one thing, if I could rephrase, rephrase my answer away from one thing I don't like, I think one of the things I, I've really come to value in in um, the pursuit of you know ahead of the game and and you know trying to make that program better, trying to translate that program, trying to scale up that program, um, has just been the value in long term long term funding and you know what I see with a lot of a lot of mm-hmm. my great friends uh, and my colleagues is just that. The, the negative impact of either no funding or short-term funding, you know, I think, I think if I could change something, it, it would be kind of to give 
to facilitate more either long-term funding or or second chance funding. You know, if we'd only had one year of funding, John, uh, like we just wouldn't have had a control trial. We just we, we we weren't ready. We didn't learn enough. We we didn't we didn't have enough experience at that point. With um, it's not that the content of the program was was not where it should have been, but it's it's our knowledge of how to work, how to research within sporting context within youth sports. Um, it wasn't as advanced as, as it is now. Mm. And so if we'd have had one year of funding um, as, you know, is potentially the norm, um, particularly with smaller grants, mm. um, I just I just don't think we would have had a control trial. We would have failed miserably. And, you know, we were lucky that we had many years' worth of funding. But what do you do if you have one year of funding and it doesn't go as planned? You have to pick yourself up. So I think there's real value in taking a very, very long-term approach to research and valuing the fact that you will make mistakes mm. and, and that, you know, learning learning from them is important. Um, but pick yourself up and, and get back on the horse, so to speak, uh, I think is, is really important. So I, if I could change something, I, I guess... It would be, you know, to give researchers security to pursue important projects over the long term. I don't know how I'd do that, but I think it's really important. Mm. No. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. Maybe closer collaboration with, with uh, I don't know, industry and charitable partners like you've yeah. done, maybe restructuring the way that grants are administered yeah. all these kinds of things could probably play into absolutely. that absolutely and i think it's also yeah. it's also a know. bit of a potentially a bit of a mindset thing for researchers you know it's a, a a program of research doesn't have to be a single grant you know it can be many small mm-hmm. grants put together it can be you know for, for us it was just getting whatever you can done by yourself or with your with your students however you can um, so I think, you know, it, it, some of it could be just a, just taking that really long-term view of, of your research program. Um, I think it's e- easy, easy for me to say when you, you, you have had, um, you know, large amounts of funding, but I think if I could, yeah, change something and maybe, maybe you have more ideas than I do, John, but it's, um, I think something that I would really value is in terms of a change to, to research is, is really helping researchers to, mm. to build a, a program of research and learn lessons and, and, and build a program of research to a point where it's capable of informing policy and, and you know, making real, real mm. world, having real world impact. Mm. I think, you know, even before that, I think there could be much more to, to be done to support people to actually um, to take that view. So what I mean by that is um, like just having support within departments and having research workshops over the summer, talking like specifically about how you can use the resources that are available to try to take this more longer term view. Uh, It's something that I've tried to do within my work, even without like anywhere near the the, the sorts of funding that you're describing there. But um, it's it's never been something anybody's ever given any help or support with but i wholly agree that it would be um that short-terminist um view of research all the time is 
probably harming science, harming harming research uh, that we do more broadly. So, yeah, but, yeah. absolutely. I, I think we're we're very we're very much drilled as researchers to think about research questions, research studies. Mm. Um, but I think we need to think more broadly about research careers and 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 what it is that that you want to achieve with your research in in ten or twenty years time and mm-hmm. and you know each each yep. study is a is a just a one little block you know and to to reach mm-hmm. that that very long term goal and you're right it's not um it's not something that we we really focus on it's it's much more about a single study or a series of studies that form a grant or something like that. Yeah. Have you ever read Chaos in the Brickyard? No. I'm going to send that paper to you. It's uh, it's basically what we're describing. It's a paper, I think, from the 70s, uh, suggesting that um, re- researchers uh, used to be all around about trying to build great edifices, um, but now the focus has turned on to making the best bricks. Um, and the analogy is obviously that it's all the focus is on now the individual piece of the puzzle as opposed to the overall end product that you're producing as a researcher. What, what is your edifice that you're building as a researcher rather than uh, how well you can make an individual brick? But there we are. I'll, I'll stick it in. I'll send it over to you and I'll stick uh, it in the show absolutely. notes for any of our audience. I, I, I couldn't agree more, John. I think that it's, it's, a, it's a great analogy. I, I would love to read that, that paper. Okay. It's a short um, one the, as well. At so. the risk of, yeah, right. so it always helps. Um, at the, at the risk of at the risk of dragging this out f- for too long, um, one of the one of the papers that has really influenced influenced me is um, by a, a researcher at Stanford, um, Tom Robinson, and, and I believe one of his colleagues, and I can't remember uh, his colleague's name, but uh, is is. It's about a solution-focused approach to research, and I think um, it's something that there's really um, I, I really buy into. You know, I think you know, we've we've used like we've used sport as a vehicle to deliver mental health programs, um, and we've never really stopped to think about you know the problem in all of this. But it's it's really about rather than looking at at, at problems and, and fixing a problem. It's, a, it's really about finding a solution to a problem. Um, mm. And the solution is not necessarily the same as fixing the cause of the problem, if that makes sense. So, mm. you know, we might yeah. look at a problem like um, poor adolescent mental health at a population level, you know, and it might be because they you know, spend too much time on screens, they're physically inactive, um, social mm-hmm. connectedness is broken down, all those kind of things. But, you know, the solution doesn't always lie in reducing screen time, increasing physical activity. In part, it, it might, and it mm-hmm. probably does. But can we think about a solution to this problem, you know? And, and for us, the solution has been, you know, trying to use sport as a vehicle to deliver um, programs to engage young men. But, you know, I think this notion of solution-focused research is also really important without, you know, mm. focusing too much on trying to analyse the problem we should potentially look for look for innovative solutions to the problem mm. yeah sounds sounds really interesting um send it over i'll stick it in the show notes i'm sure others would be interested sure. in this as well we we're almost getting into the uh entering the debate that was going around on twitter the other week with um 
is it Tao Yarconi and Daniel Larkins talking about like the value of basic and applied uh, more descriptive work? Um, but yeah, we, we're going to have to we're going to have to cut it there. We can uh, we can talk more about this another time, uh, just because I'm sure. Uh, we can. Yeah, I think uh, there's there's lots lots more to talk about here. But um, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your insights with the program. It's not every day we uh, get to have an in-depth discussion with somebody that's doing this kind of work. So that's that's really valuable. So thanks very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been it's been a lot of fun, John. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. It's it's been great to chat through a whole range of of these topics. But um, look forward to doing it again sometime. <laughs>